A mentionable contains depictions of domestic violence, sexual assault, suicidal ideation, and pornography. This podcast is intended for ages 13 and older. We recommend parents listen through before or alongside their child. There are things you aren't supposed to talk about in polite society. Things so taboo they make people uncomfortable by even mentioning them. But what if being silent about these things isn't protecting us, but killing us? Throughout this season, we're taking you on a deep dive into an industry that almost no one knows anything about. Its websites receive more than double the traffic of Amazon, and its revenue is bigger than Netflix and Disney combined. We'll ask the questions, how did we get here? How does content go from being consumed in basements behind closed doors to world prominence? And how does a guy from a small town in South Carolina become male performer of the year? I'm your host, Lee Shelton, and this is Unmentionable, a journey through the life of a prodigal porn star and a look behind the curtain of a $100 billion industry. Chapter one, the watermelon capital of the world. I grew up in the foothills of the mountains in the northwest part of the state of South Carolina. And at 12 years old, I could hop on my bike, cut through a few yards and be at my best friend's house in about three minutes. We rode those bikes all over the neighborhood, sometimes as much as 20 miles in a day. And on one of those occasions, we were riding and noticed an unmarked VHS tape in a ditch in front of one of the yards. Now, not much will spike the curiosity of a 12-year-old like an unmarked VHS tape. And so we grabbed it and took it back to his house to see what treasure we'd found. We popped it into his VCR, and after a few seconds of static, we were looking at a fully naked woman in what turned out to be a porno. After a few seconds, we ejected the tape and hid it under his bed. I first encountered porn on a VHS tape, but before VHS, there were magazines. Before magazines, there were photos, illustrations, sculptures, paintings, etc. But how far back does it go? Human sexuality begins in one chapter. Genesis 2. This is David Johnson. His education is in biblical exposition. If you're not familiar with biblical literature, the first book of the Bible begins with a creation account. The first chapter is the creation of all the days and that sort of thing. But when you get into Genesis 2, there's a deep dive into the relationship between the man and the wife, the man and the woman. Here, we're talking about Adam and Eve, who were created in the Garden of Eden, the perfect beginnings of humanity. The irony is the dual aspect of man, body and soul, but the nature of that soul is often missed. I'm not sure how much time you've spent thinking about the nature of the soul, but philosophers, historians, and theologians could spend hours in debate about it. But talking with David, there's another aspect that we usually don't think about. God creates man in verse 7. There's an interesting idea that says, He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature or a living being. The idea of a breath tells us the story man got a soul. However, what the Hebrew language can literally be re-translated, understood to be needy man. So from the very beginning, man is created by God directly to be needy. He needs something. So if you think of it in those terms, that need is going to be recognized 
and then met by the creation of a woman. For the rest of human history, we see mankind trying to fill that need in a variety of ways, often fueled by sexual desires. Fast forward to a letter in the New Testament written to a city during the rule of the Roman Empire. If you look at just three chapters in in 1 Corinthians, you'll discover three patterns of the sexual ethic of Corinth. Sexual ethics is the philosophy that explores the moral obligation of sexual activities. It specifically deals with issues around human sexual behavior and how people think about sex when it comes to what's acceptable and what's frowned upon. And because he wrote two letters there, it's a pretty large element of, um, of his writing. Chapter five, there's incest in the church and the church is proud of it. Some man is with his mother-in-law. Chapter six, there is wanton sexuality and he has to say literally, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, don't abuse it. And by the time you get to chapter seven, here's the shock. It would seem sex is everywhere in Corinth except in the marital bed with Christians. He is saying to Christians in 1 Corinthians chapter seven, don't deprive one another and come together lest Satan tempt you from your lack of self-control. Okay, wait, crazy sex, a lot of sex, and no sex in the church. So what's up in Corinth? We see a very wide spectrum of behavior in Corinth. Some people in the church are abstaining from sex completely. Others are making it an idol in everyday life. And some are even filling their sexual needs with family members. So the idea is that sex gets turned upside down. And what was fun and, and evidently licentious and do whatever you want to do in the early days, later on it impacted marriages. And there were problems in the marriages. The whole idea of couples, whether they divorce or they separate or they stay together, comes out of that ethic. So in Corinth, the sexual ethic was loose and leads to more questions. What is sex meant for? What do we do with this neediness we feel? What principles or ethics do we put around sex in society? And these are the questions we've wrestled with all throughout history. From ancient times, what many call the oldest occupation, prostitution, has been a part of society's attempt at filling the needy nature of the soul. Scattered among historical artifacts, we often find illustrations of sexual nature. Sometimes male, sometimes female, often both. From cave carvings to depictions etched on papyrus, there's no shortage of explicit illustrations from centuries past. But what we commonly refer to as broadly distributed pornography in the Western world required the help of technology. More specifically, the printing press. By the 15th century, printing presses had been set up over most of Europe. It meant that as many pages could now be printed in a day as a man could write by hand in a whole year. The invention of the printing press enabled the rapid spread of information throughout the pre-industrial world. Literacy rates began to skyrocket, and books that were once carefully kept in libraries became more commonplace. At the same time, shops creating and selling pornographic materials found their footing almost as fast as the printing industry began. During Queen Victoria's reign, starting in 1837, on London's Hollowell Street, nicknamed Booksellers Row, was a notorious hub of over 50 pornographic shops. The period known as the Victorian age in both Britain and the United States witnessed a flourishing of pornography, paradoxically thriving alongside the era's stringent sexual taboos. The 19th century's technological advancements, particularly in photography and motion pictures, were rapidly adapted for producing pornography. 
1924, there was a silent pornographic film literally called Casting Couch. In the plot, a young lady auditions for a part in a movie. The casting director gets her alone in his office and demands that she have sex with him or she won't get the part. The term casting couch jumped back into the modern vocabulary in 2017 during the Me Too movement. Warren Harvey Weinstein convicted on two counts of sexual assault. Six accusers took the stand against Harvey Weinstein after bombshell reports in the New York Times and the New Yorker claimed he had a history of preying on women. And many say this is just the beginning. Producers like Harvey Weinstein would sexually assault young aspiring actresses who were just trying to get their big break. The relationship between Hollywood and sex goes back to the beginning and is a recurring theme that can be traced all the way to present day. In 1953, a writer for Esquire magazine based in Chicago had ambitions of starting his own publication. And welcome, I'm Hugh Hefner, your host. Starring Hugh Hefner. Well, hello and welcome to the Playboy Luau. Partially funded by a loan of $1,000 from his mother, Hugh Hefner and his associates founded Playboy Enterprises Incorporated. They printed 50,000 copies of the first edition featuring Marilyn Monroe on the cover. They sold out quickly. We'll explore the rise of porn in Hollywood and the creation of the internet in the next episode. But for now, we'll set our sights back on South Carolina in the watermelon capital of the world. There are a lot of companies out there working against you, your marriage, or your family. You've heard about them on this show, but here's one that is on your side, our friends at Covenant Eyes. For over 23 years, Covenant Eyes has been the number one trusted software for Christians seeking to live a porn-free life. I know pornography isn't an easy topic to hear about, but it must be talked about. It's a silent killer. Porn is damaging marriages and families and impacting the work of the church by holding people hostage to this secret sin. Maybe you've experienced this in your own life or seen this in the life of someone you love. Victory by Covenant Eyes is a powerful tool that helps Christians who are serious about quitting porn or never starting to begin with. Victory combines industry-leading technology with decades of experience and leadership in recovery content, accountability, and behavior change. Victory software has a powerful built-in feature and an optional blocking technology, making it an unparalleled tool in the fight to live a porn-free life. Scripture teaches us the importance of being accountable. Proverbs 27, 17 says, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. And James 5, 16 says, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So now let's talk about how the Victory app works. First, using the link provided in the show notes or by visiting covenanteyes.com and entering code BROOM30, you can download Victory on all your devices. Next, you'll find a trusted friend to be your ally. This is someone who can walk beside you through the ups and downs of recovery. Your ally will get push notifications of any porn use and reminders to have accountability conversations. The Victory app remains the hub for your recovery journey for you and your ally. You'll find biblical recovery-centric courses for yourself, your ally, and even your spouse. There's a conversation feature that allows allies to react to activity, ask a question, or send an encouragement or prayer request privately and within the accountability context. And remember, accountability is not others calling you out on your sin, but others calling you up to the person you are in Christ. So what are you waiting for? Anyone can get started on their path to recovery for free by visiting covenanteyes.com and entering code BROOM30. B-R-O-O-M-E and the number 30, or by clicking the links in the show notes today. 
almost exactly 100 miles east of my hometown in the same state of South Carolina, Joshua Broom grew up in the self-proclaimed watermelon capital of the world, a 500-person town named Pageland. I think the best example of this town is Fourth uh, of July, always have a watermelon parade, so it's self-proclaimed watermelon capital of the world. When the parade happens, people will set like their like lawn chairs out in their, you know, in their yards or go to Main Street and just sit out there and for the most part you know everybody. You know, if you walked across the street you would know people. Down the street you'd know people. You know people like on the floats, you know like the businesses, you know who they are, you know them by name, they know you by name. Uh, they're calling the kids by name as they're throwing them candy. So yeah, just like a sweet southern small town. In 1981, his mom had gotten pregnant with him at 15, and his dad wasn't involved at all in his upbringing. Not much will change a teenage girl's life more than discovering she's pregnant. And when the baby's father isn't going to be involved, it has an even bigger impact. That's the circumstances that 15-year-old Lynn Broom found herself in. She dropped out of high school to care for her baby. She later went back to night school to get her degree. Growing up without a dad can have a number of effects on a young boy. But when you grow up in a town with little more than 600 families in it, you're going to run into your dad on occasion. I would know that he would be there. Like, it's not that I like, went up to him and I was like, hey, you know, tug him on the, like pant leg or something like that. Josh's mom, Lynn, waited tables at the town's diner. And if she were to look out the window, she would see the first name of her son's father, which he shared with the store directly across the street. So, for example, uh, Mickey's, the restaurant that my mom worked at, Rogers was across the street. So my dad's name is Roger Dale Price. My grandfather owned the gas station that was across the street from Mickey's. But, like, he would be there. And, you know, or like he would be like in and out like places because there's only so many places to go. So I would I would see him. Being a single mom is hard. She and Josh lived in the same house with his grandmother and grandfather, aunt and two uncles. But all that was about to change. When Josh was about nine years old, his mom introduced him to someone new. I remember this guy comes over. Um, he like always had a mullet. <laughs> um, his name's David. And, uh, like, nice guy, like, liked sports, wanted to play catch with me or whatever. Um, just I remember him, like, I don't know, like, I didn't know how to be a son. And I guess, like, he was trying to be a dad. I just, like, just weird. I feel like so quickly they met, they get all of a sudden they're getting married and we're moving, like, maybe 10 minutes away. We were living in a trailer where I had a treehouse. What started off as a happy home life started to show some cracks pretty early on. It was like a really, really short season. But I mean, very quickly, it went from like kind of confused about the situation to um, him like being drunk all the time. Like there being beer bottles everywhere. And like, we didn't like, we didn't drink. Like no one in, no one in my family drinks. So like just alcohol being around was like confusing to me. He was abusing drugs. I don't ever remember like seeing drugs, but I remember him being like, this is not someone drunk. This is someone like out of their mind. Josh remembers one occasion where David was siphoning gas out of his mom's car. I'm like, why is he drinking gas out of my mom's car? He was putting this, he was putting it into like a, a gas tank to put into 
his car. And I remember that day, you know, like, I remember I saw him and then I told my mom and she was like yelling at him. And then I remember like him trying to get into, get into the house and she didn't want him to come in. He was like beating on the door. There was one particular time when things got violent. The dresser was pushed against the door. The doors cracked just enough where I can kind of like see her. And she's holding her face. And I'm like screaming, like trying to like get in. And and her saying, honey, I'm fine, honey, I'm fine. And me trying to get in and I couldn't. And just feeling like, like so emasculated because like for me, like my whole identity in a in a in a sense was around you know I'm this is my mom I'm her son like I don't have a dad but my job is to protect her you know it's like who like if you asked me probably at that point in my life if I could articulate it like what is the basis of your identity I'm like I am her son like that's the, you know that was the thing that I was most proud of I was most proud that she was my mom and in the in the role that I clung to was you know being her son so not being able to protect her like really messed with me David and Lynn's marriage was short-lived and Josh entered his teenage years once again without a father figure to answer the questions teenage boys are bound to have despite growing up without a father in the house Josh did have a supportive family his grandparents and great aunt lived on the same property he recounts how special the meals they shared together were my grandma was like if you think homemaker um, that was like you, you you didn't want her to turn on you. <laughs> like, she cooked three meals a day. Like, we never ate, like... I don't ever remember there not being, like, a home-cooked meal. I remember, like, every meal, even if we were eating spaghetti, she would cook both biscuits and cornbread. You know, just like your southern grandma. Like, I remember, like, when dinner was ready, she would, like, scream at me, like, out the, you know, out the back door. Because I'd be, like, in the dark shooting basketball. Josh had a particularly special relationship with his grandfather. His grandfather was an avid fisherman and would often bring Josh along. I remember this story so clearly. He was like, this is where the fish bite. But all of a sudden that cork goes under like fast. And um, I, I'm holding it and it almost like comes out of my hand. And I'm not that big. I'm like screaming for my grandpa. I don't know, I'm, I'm not even sure what I'm saying. I'm just like yelling out sounds and he, and he runs down and he's like helping me and we got this fish and he comes out and somehow he stays on the line and it was this like gigantic large mouth bass and we like get him and we like finally secure him and then he like we get in the car and like he's in this like little cooler and we drive to the store and he's like He's like, my boy caught this, like, three points, you know, whatever. Like, he probably said, the six-pound bass, you know. And they, they take my picture, and I remember he, he, he had it framed on uh, his mirror till the day he died. He had this picture of me sitting there, like, grinning ear to ear with this fish. He baited the hook. He threw it in. He handed me the pole. He pulled it out. But I, quote-unquote, caught it. Um, but I'll remember that forever. Even though Josh had his grandparents there for him, his mom had her hands full as a single parent, so Josh had to grow up quicker than most. I don't ever remember a conversation revolving around sex. I don't remember seeing anything inappropriate on TV. We watched, like, these three guys with mullets sing worship songs, uh, Andy Griffith, sports, and Days of Our Lives. So Days of Our Lives would probably be the, the only 
representation of anything sexualized at all. But soap operas can only answer so many questions. Someone had subscribed to like Sports Illustrated and there was a swimsuit edition. And I was just like, oh my Lord, what is this? And it was so common for me to be cutting the grass and I lived off a major highway and for truck drivers to be looking at, you know, like printed porn and just toss it out the window. So it was a common occurrence for me to find. I know from firsthand experience that you don't have to be out looking for porn, but porn can find you. It can awaken something in the mind of a young man. And for Josh, those thoughts turned into actions. And like once those thoughts entered my mind and like I like tried to act with them and like, I mean, I think I may have lost my virginity like as early as like 13, 14 tops. Once while he and his mom were at a mall, a talent scout stopped him and Josh began modeling. This is when Josh began to consider acting as a career. We were at a mall in Monroe, North Carolina. They were doing this like, um, like scout, like modeling, like scouting type of thing. And um, she, someone walked up to me and asked me if I'd be interested in it. And I grabbed my mom and we had a conversation with her. And my mom's question was always, how much does it cost? And I remember it cost like 125 bucks. And like 125 bucks, like at that point was, it might as well have been like $1,000. I think the, the first like shoot I got, it was like a belk. And then a bunch of stuff like that. And then I think the first thing I did, like outside of like that, was like a Von Dutch. Modeling wasn't Josh's only extracurricular. The game of basketball was a passion for Josh growing up. His grandfather set up a goal for him on a light post in their backyard. Josh painted the square on the backboard. I played like basketball from the jump. That was just something I always did, loved it. That part of my life was like something I like really treasured because it was almost like I was a different person. And I had like a really neat relationship with Coach B. Josh's ninth grade year, he made the team at school and got to play for the legendary Coach B. Like you say Billy Blatney and Pageland, everybody's like, yeah, Coach B. Um, like really respect, like really respected man in that community. He treated me like a man when I didn't understand what that meant. I remember like he would, like we would always say the Lord's Prayer. Like he would always say, yes, sir, no, sir. You'd always like look people in the eye when you talk to them. You always like shook hands like firmly. You just did like certain things that like, Honestly, I wasn't taught. When it came time for Josh to go to college, basketball was still the priority. His uncle Glenn had attended Francis Marion, and Josh, the second member of his family to attend college, followed in his footsteps. We wanted to get a better understanding of Josh's time in college. So we met him on the campus of Francis Marion so he could give us a tour. Being on a college campus, it was like an idea of like me not to be the guy that grew up without a dad, you know? Yeah, just go, coming to a new place, it's significantly bigger than Pageland. There are some modeling opportunities like in in like in proximity to here, so which was cool because I was able to keep that going. Just like bigger network here than um, the agency that I was with. Josh joined a fraternity and experienced real brotherhood in his time in college. Like pledging fraternity and just, I mean like, frater like fraternity stuff was like cool. Just like being in a frat house and like being around those guys and like we wore like shirt and ties and pens on Tuesdays. And so I remember like not knowing how to tie a tie and like, like some of the guys just like realizing that I wasn't 
like exposed to the same things that they were growing like growing up. So there was a lot of guys kind of like put their arm around me and kind of helped me out. Before this, Josh had only worn clip-ons. And I just remember like them doing it for me a few times, and then it's like, all right, we're gonna show you how to do it. The Windsor, it was the the single Windsor. And I remember like being so proud that I could like undo it and then like do it. And it was like just long enough where I could like tuck it into the back of the tie. Josh didn't take academics that seriously, but he filled the time in other ways. The status of um, how like, how well known and popular and liked I was like, was correlated around like me being able to like pull girls. You know, it's like I could, if I if I asked a group of girls to come come over to a party, like they would show up, um, or like if if I wanted to, if, if someone was like, "Hey, let's go hang out with some girls," I could like call up someone in the middle of the night, like that, you know, or you know, even even worse than that, you know, like I, I was just the guy that could um, make that happen. I I was like already like partying a lot and like drinking pretty heavily and. Um, I was doing like ecstasy like every once in a while and just, um, it, it gotten like crazy. But the bad decisions didn't stop there. I got a DUI, um, August 10th to me, like getting arrested like, with a DUI. I'm like, life is over, you know, lost my license. Like, what am I supposed to do? Um, got all these like fines to pay, classes to take, all this stuff. It only took me getting a DUI to be like, maybe I should just move that way. And that's what he did. He loaded up some clothes in his red Jeep Cherokee and started driving across the country. He didn't tell a soul, not even his mom. I should have told her I was leaving. But then I was like, well, if I, should, if I told her I was leaving, she would have like, told me not to do it. I knew I, I did something in a way that I shouldn't have done it. She worked really hard to help me like get into school. And like, you know, like she was proud of me that I was doing that. And I just like kind of just, I didn't really go to class. I didn't really try. And I just like randomly dropped out of school and just kind of like fled without telling anyone. He had no plans for anywhere to stay, no job lined up, and he didn't know a single person in California. He did, however, have a meeting scheduled with a talent agent that he had met on MySpace of all places. I had this MySpace interaction uh, with this agent, and she said, if I get out there, she'll pretty much, she'll sign me. So I was like, okay. So I went out there and like, I show up, I go to her office, have like a 10 minute conversation with me. And you know, I'm like bonkers excited. She's like, okay, you're excited old young man, you know? Um, well, yeah, let's try to do something. We snapped like a, a Polaroid and my Polaroid was there like with everyone else and I was in the mix. He was well on his way to becoming an actor. All that was left was to land a role. Just remember being in an audition that like people I knew who were in movies was that. And I was like, made it. <laughs> While acting was the main focus, a few modeling doors did open. 
I did a uh, Ed Hardy eyewear ad, and it made it on a billboard. But the reality is, like, you don't get any, you don't get more money because it's a, a bigger picture. <laughs> but I sure thought I was cool. <laughs> and while Josh had an encouraging start to his acting career, he still had bills to pay, and just acting wasn't cutting it. A new friend connected Josh with a restaurant that was hiring on Sunset Boulevard. They have interviews on Tuesdays at 3 p.m., and there was like a line. The manager conducting the interview was also from South Carolina, so he and Josh had an instant connection. I remember like having this conversation with him, and it wasn't like, you know, uh, what what is your service experience like? You know, do you have you know uh, references? None of that. Here's my headshot. You know, what's your personality like? Sell me a drink. You know, at 10 p.m. in here. There's 600 people in here. Are you going to get distracted if Nick Carter or Paris Hilton's like sitting in the corner? Because these are, this is the reality of being here. And Josh started out operating the restaurant's mechanical bowl and then waiting tables. I operated the mechanical bowl. And the objective of operating the mechanical bowl, so you've got paying customers, because you have to pay to ride a bowl, uh, more often than not, your your waiter or waitress will comp your bull ride, like to to get you up there because it it you know it create it like creates like a, a certain atmosphere and things like that. But what often will happen is a lady will ride the bull, and people will tip you to vibrate the bull in such a way that pe- that that the lady is exposed. In his mind, the job was temporary. Everyone who worked there dreamed of bigger things. Everyone was like actors, singers, you know, models. Like, that. everyone that was doing that was doing that to mitigate their expenses so that they could pursue something else. It was a town full of people chasing a dream, needing money to pay their bills, and it's a tourist town and you want attractive people waiting on those tables. But it wasn't just a job, it was a place to network with the actors and executives that frequented the restaurant. Josh was establishing himself at the new restaurant. He was learning the ropes, he was making friends, and he developed a new romantic interest with a lady who was beloved by the staff. There was a girl that was there. I remember I was pursuing her and she just wasn't having it because like she knew like what type of dude I was. Like she wasn't like that. She was a really respected dancer. She was like no nonsense. Like had wanted nothing to do with like party scene, like with me. We ended up hanging out and I remember like so we were kinda like dating ish. The job gave Josh an opportunity to attend auditions and to continue to pursue modeling. It was an eclectic place filled with all kinds of characters. But one night, three girls came in for drinks. Yeah, so the girls are sitting down at the table and um, all three dressed like pretty provocatively. And I'm thinking, you know, am I gonna get their number? Are they famous? Do they know someone? Um, just kind of the things that, you know, when, when, when someone that has kind of, you know, Anytime anyone walks in and they're like attractive or like they carry themselves in such a way, everyone's kind of buzzing like, are they someone? Who are they? 
And uh, they sit down and I start talking to them. And very quickly the conversation turns to, do you want to be an actor? And I was like, certainly. (laughs) That's why I'm here. Um, Yeah. And then they asked, well, do you want to do porn? Like, we're talking about porn. Next time on Unmentionable. You know that feeling when you know you've done something you shouldn't do? I just remember him just kind of like being pretty direct with me. What are, what are you doing here? What do you hope to accomplish? I'm out here to do modeling and acting, and I guess I want to be famous. And you get this, this pit in your gut. He's like, I'll tell you what, I'll set up one shoot for you. And if that goes well, we'll have another conversation. Thinking like, okay, this is a mistake. This is exciting. This is a mistake. I should leave. And you just know that you're going to have to have a conversation that you really don't want to have. A lot of people saw it, like screenshotted it or sent it to me. It's like, oh, bro, I saw you like on this or whatever. That's exactly where I was. Unmentionable was written by Lee Shelton, Jacob Jolly, and Tyler McKinney. Directed and hosted by Lee Shelton. Art direction by Jacob Jolly. Kathleen Terrell is our production executive. Edited by Tyler McKinney and assisted by Jacob Jolly. Original score and composition by Tyler McKinney. Special thanks to our guest, David Johnson. This episode wouldn't have happened without Alex Lewis... Craig Dennison, Tim Ross, Justin Motes, and of course, Joshua Broom. Thank you for trusting us with your story. Unmentionable is a production of Compel Studio. Christian media tends to make neat, sterile content wrapped in a pretty bow. Too often we shy away from the real, the uncomfortable, and the disquieting. At Compel Studio, we don't believe that sweeping these subjects under the rug is helping. We're creating content that doesn't avoid these tough subjects, but leans into them. Exposing darkness and discussing things that we desperately need to. In scripture, we see Jesus boldly confronting uncomfortable topics. His words provoke and challenge the status quo. And we believe it's time for content made by Jesus followers to do the same. If you believe that too, you can join us and sign up for updates on all our future releases by going to compel.studio.